The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing and turn in your scriptures to uh, Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, we are continuing on in our exposition of the book of Exodus this evening. Uh, Coming now to the last section of this particular chapter of the book, Exodus chapter 34, verses uh, 29 through 35. And after we read this uh, particular text, which will be our sermon text this evening, I'll give you a heads up that we're going to turn and read from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as well, but I'll have you be seated for that, but just keep it in mind. This is the word of our God. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, With the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, and that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. It says the word of the Lord, you may be seated. One of the reasons that uh, this particular portion of the book of Exodus is so fascinating is that the Apostle Paul gives us something of an extended meditation upon this particular text in Second. Uh, Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4, and I'm going to read some of that this evening, starting at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, and you'll hear how he draws upon this story. Here, I'll just remind you that he is seeking to, or he is discussing the legitimacy of his ministry as a minister of the new covenant of the Lord. Verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you, or from you? You yourselves are our letters of recommendation, written on our hearts, uh, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God's. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stones, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? 
For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what, was, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, behold, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have, renou- we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever, unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word this evening. Father God, as we come to this particular section of the book of Exodus, we ask, O Lord, that You would bless us, that we might see not only the glory of Your radiance reflected in Your servant Moses, but that we might be pointed forward to the glory most perfectly expressed as it is presented to us, as we behold the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask, O Father, as we seek to catch a glimpse of this glory, that you, O Father, would indeed transform us from one degree of glory into another, conforming us into the image of that one who is the perfect image of your invisible being. We pray it in his holy name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we come to the end of a very significant section this evening in the book of Exodus. In some ways, this section began all the way back when we begin to consider the instructions for the tabernacle, or even further back whenever Moses actually ascended Mount Sinai to commune with the Lord and to receive the commandments of this covenant that he was making with him there. But in earnest, this section really begins in chapter 32 with the rebellion of God's people. We've considered that a great deal over the last few weeks. And really, it it sums itself up here in chapter 34 at at the end of the chapter here. We could really describe the beginning of this section in in chapter 32 as a rebellion 
and we could really describe what we see here in chapter 34 is the culmination of a reconciliation uh, on the part of the Lord God and Israel. The people of God have rebelled against him in this great act of wickedness, this spiritual disaster, this calamity of all calamities in the history of Israel's relationship and fellowship with God when they spurned his grace and turned away from him right in the midst of the making of the covenants. And it ends with God bringing a word of grace and of mercy and of restoration to his people here in the end of chapter 34. We see rebellion and we see reconciliation. It's a highly structured part of the book of Exodus. It's been pointed out, I'm sure, by either myself or Pastor Holst or Pastor Aachen, that this section is really chiastic in its structure. As we've already noted, it begins in earnest with that description of the instructions concerning the tabernacle's building. And then it will culminate with the actual construction of the tabernacle. And then in the middle of it is this little section that we've been considering for the last few weeks, 32 to 34. And you'll note that even within that, there are parallel accounts, if you will. And we look at one of those frames, if you will, of the text this evening. You see, what we see here in the text before us is the second descent of Moses from Mount Sinai. You remember how the first went. If you remember, again, as we noted last week, Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights the first time. And he has been on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights the second time. And you note that the first time ended with God telling Moses that the people of God were in open rebellion against him. And you remember that the Lord sent Moses down the mountain, and he sent him down the mountain. I think we could justifiably describe that first coming down the mountain as coming down the mountain in judgment. The Lord sent Moses to really confront the people of God for their wickedness for their rebellion, for their act of spiritual adultery that they had committed against him. And if you remember, when he came down the mountain, he did a number of things. One of the things he did was he broke the tablets. I don't know if you recall that or not. But that's a remarkable thing to consider. God had just gotten done inscribing his commandments on these tablets, and Moses throws them on the ground and he breaks them into pieces, which is symbolic, of course, of the relationship that existed between God and his people. Because as that covenant symbol of those tablets were broken there and in pieces on the floor, it was an apt description, really, of the relationship between God and his people that lay broken in tatters, in pieces, on the ground. Moses broke the tablets. When he came down, he called to himself those who would stand with the Lord, the Levites. And then what did he do? He didn't send them out to counsel the people of God and say, look, you guys have got it really wrong. You need, to, you need to change your perspective. No, he sent them out with the sword. And what did they do? They went through the camp and they killed people. And the Lord threatened to take away his presence from the people. And the Lord sent a plague on the people. It was not a happy homecoming. <laughs> the first time that Moses came down the mountain. He came down in judgment. And he really came down in condemnation in many ways. But here we have another instance where Moses having met with God, comes down the mountain. And you'll note that in many ways, this experience of Moses' coming back into the camp is completely the opposite of what happened the first time. Moses comes this time not with a word of condemnation, not with a word of judgment, but with a word of grace and mercy 
and reconciliation between God and his people. And as he does so, the text points out a number of remarkable things about Moses. And as we look at those things, what we see really is this. We see God revealing once again, as he has over and over and over again throughout the book of Exodus, two aspects of his character, both his glory and his grace. And he's revealing those things to the people through the mediator of the covenant, Moses. And it is a remarkable revelation of God that we have here before us. And it's a remarkable typology of the Lord Jesus Christ as the ultimate mediator between God and his people. Because this text not only tells us about God's grace here, but it points us forward to unimaginably greater grace and mercy, perfect grace and mercy, which the Lord shows to us in the mediator of the new covenant. So as we begin to consider this text, I want us to look at three particular aspects that we see here in these verses, all related to Moses. And I want us to see how they all point us to the glory and to the grace of, the, of God demonstrated in the mediator between God and man. First, I want us to consider from verses 29 to 31 roughly the appearance of the mediator. I want us to consider the appearance of the mediator. No doubt that's probably what struck your attention as we read the text. His face is shining. You don't see that every day. And it's a remarkable occurrence that we see here. And we'll see what this teaches us and why this is the case in these verses. And then I want us to move on from that to verses 32 through 33 and consider the message of the mediator there. And then after seeing the message of the mediator and the appearance of the mediator, we have this very interesting section of text in verses 34 through 35 where we see the veiling of the mediator. And as we consider these various aspects of Moses that are pointed out to us here in this text, we will come to grow in our understanding of God and of his grace and of his mercy to his people and how his people ought to respond and learn from the work that he has done in the mediator of his covenants. Uh, let's then turn and begin to consider first the appearance of the mediator as we see it laid out for us in verses 29 and following. Note what the text tells us. When Moses came down the Mount, uh, from Mount Sinai, He came, right, the text tells us in verse 29, with two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down the mountain. That's the first thing I want us to notice here. Before we even get to the description of Moses' appearance, we hear something else about Moses. We hear what he brings with him when he comes down the mountain. We've already noted the symbology of what happened when Moses broke the first tablets of the covenant of testimony, as it were, upon the ground as he came down in judgment against the people. And now it's no accident that the Lord comes with two more tablets. This time, of course, he will not break the tablets, but he will actually communicate to the people the content of the covenant that the Lord has established with the people and has summarized on the tablets with his writing there of the ten words, the ten commandments of the Lord. He comes with a new tablet of testimony or tablets of testimony. And that's remarkable in and of itself because as soon as we see these restored uh, or these new tablets of testimony rather, we immediately know something about Moses' experience on the mountain. We know that the Lord has been merciful to his people 
and he has reestablished the covenant that had been broken and the first coming down. So he comes with the tablets. But of course, that's easy to miss. The next thing the text notes is not so easy to miss, I don't think. The text tells us, interestingly, that as Moses comes down the mountain, he did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Now that's an interesting comment that the text lays out before us there. It's interesting. It makes you wonder when Moses figured out that his face was shining. Of course, we're going to see the response of the people. I'd imagine that it was then. But you know that it tells us several things. The first thing is, is that Moses is ignorant of his condition. And the second thing is, is that Moses was radiant with the glory of God. Now, we've considered in recent memory uh, the, the transfiguration of our Lord, and we talked then about this passage in, in some detail. We discussed how Jesus' transfiguration and Moses' is quite different. Namely, Jesus did not borrow glory from anyone else. Jesus did not pick up, as it were, the, the residue of God's glory having been in God's presence. Rather, Jesus himself was the one who radiated glory. And that's not the case here, but... Nonetheless, it's a remarkable passage. Moses, having spent the last 40 days and 40 nights talking with God, now has the imprint of that experience physically placed upon him. And he is radiating, he is shining forth in some mysterious way with the glory of the Lord. Now look at the response of the people when they see this. Look at what they do in verse 30. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him. Now think about that for a second. At first you may be wondering, well, why are they afraid of him? But if you reflect upon it a little bit, I think there's two reasons at least why they would be afraid of Moses at this point. The first reason is probably they remember the last time Moses came down the mountain. It did not go well for them. People were killed, there were plagues, it was not a pleasant experience. No doubt that's in their mind. But the second reason, I think the most important reason, is simply that it is the uniform response of human beings when they come in contact with the glory of God to respond with fear. And here as Moses comes down the mountain, he does not have the glory the same way God himself has the glory, but even a measure, even the residual as it were, of that glorious presence that shines off of his face. It strikes fear and it strikes terror into the heart of men. And as they look at it, they are afraid. They're afraid. A text tells us afterwards all the people of Israel came near him and he commanded them that all, or rather I go back a, a step, I'm sorry, in verse 31, it says there that Moses called them And Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. I, I, in my mind at least, have the image of cockroaches when you turn the lights on. When Moses comes down the mountain, the people are scared. And they're running away. And he's telling them, wait, 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 come back. And he has to call them and tell them to come back into his presence. They're scared of him. There's a number of things we can learn from this. I think the first thing we need to see is that the the glowing radiance, the the glory that shines forth from Moses, again, it's mysterious, 
we don't exactly know how to describe. And indeed, sometimes uh, scholars in the past have actually translated this word shine as, as being horns. And so sometimes you'll see medieval paintings with Moses with a pair of horns. And if you see that, that's, this is where that comes from. It's a mysterious event. People struggle to understand what's actually happening here. I don't think he has horns, by the way. But what is certain is that the fact that Moses radiates the way he does, it it proves something that's very important for the people to understand. It, It proves that he has been with the Lord. You can't fake that. You can't. You know, when the people ran away, so did, so did Aaron. I don't know if you noted that or not. He's particularly singled out. Now remember, Aaron was the one who the people of God wanted to be their leader. He was like, this guy can do it. Moses, we don't know where he's at. But, but Aaron, why don't, you, why don't you be the leader of Israel? Well, here's that leader that the people wanted. And he catches one glimpse of what it looks like to authentically be in the presence of Yahweh. And he's just as scared as the rest of them. But Moses, Moses physically indicates to them that he has been in the presence of the Lord. It establishes his bona fides, as you will, as the leader of Israel and as the only one who can mediate between them and the Lord. He's the only guy who's glowing. He's the only guy around who you can look at and you immediately say, that's the guy who talks with the Lord. That's one aspect of it. And I think it's an important aspect here. The Lord has given a tangible sign that Moses is the mediator, but it also gives a tangible sign to the reality of what Moses' message is. And we'll see that in just a few moments as Moses brings this message of mercy and grace The people of Israel aren't left wondering, is this guy just making this up? Did he actually talk to the Lord at the top of the mountain? There's no faking the radiance of God's glory that was upon him. And so as he preached to them, really, as he commanded them, as he told them about what he had heard from God, they would have had no doubt in their mind that this is the authentic messenger of God and that he brought a message of God's grace to his people. But before we move to discuss that message in greater detail, I do want to say one thing that I thought was fascinating. As you read commentaries sometimes, it's interesting to see the difference between older commentaries and new commentaries. I say that a lot, by the way, so I know you're probably tired of hearing me say it. But one of the great things about older commentaries is that they're, they're much more interested in applying the text. And Matthew Henry has a a particularly interesting application here. He notes particularly that Moses did not know that he was radiating the glory of God. And, And it's interesting, I was reading this text, and just this last week I was speaking with an older saint, someone who I believe has been used greatly by the Lord, who was expressing to me their disappointments in where they are in the Christian life. And Matthew Henry brought that particular situation up. And he noted that Moses is a man who has been in the presence of God, face-to-face, as it were, with the glory of the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. And he did not realize how it had transformed him. He couldn't see it. That's really 
remarkable. Now, why couldn't he see it? He couldn't see it because Moses knew what it was like to stand in the presence of the glory of God. So for Moses, the glory that was radiating off of his face, well, it was nothing special because he had seen God. He had been up close communing with the Lord God of Israel. He had seen him in his glorious presence. And for him, this little bit of radiating glory that came off of his face, it didn't didn't impress him at all. He didn't even notice it. And yet, everyone around him was immediately struck and immediately knew that he had been in the presence of the Lord. It's a fascinating application that he makes. And he says something like this, those who spend the most productive time in communion and fellowship with God, those who have lived with the Lord uh, for many years, those who have begun to really and truly gaze upon the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, when they look at themselves, it is hard for them to see anything but their imperfections. And yet those around them can see how the Lord has transformed them. It's an interesting application. It's very helpful, I think, specifically for those of us who often get discouraged at the amount of progress we're making in the Christian life. Remember that the more you grow, the more you know the Lord, the less impressed you're going to be with yourself. That's natural because you glimpse the glory of the Lord. But we move from the appearance of the mediator quickly to the message of the mediator. And we'll only spend a brief amount of time on the message of the mediator because the text really doesn't focus in upon the message. You notice that the the text is greatly interested in the radiance of Moses. And it actually only gives one verse to this incredible message that Moses brings to the people. But we see what happens here in verse 31. The Lord has called, or rather Moses has called the people back to himself. And in verse 32, he addresses the people. All the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when the Lord had finished, or rather, when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Very quickly, as we've already noted, here Moses has come, and he's come with a message. He's come with a message of grace, and he's come with a message of covenantal communion with the Lord. Now, commentators point out, and this is very helpful to me at least, that if you think about it, the people of Israel have never heard about the tabernacle. Uh, They've never heard about anything that Moses was preparing to tell them when he came down the mountain the first time because he didn't really communicate any of that, did he? The deal was off. The covenant had been broken. The communion was destroyed. And so when he came down the first time, he came down with that message of condemnation. This time he comes, and you can imagine what it must have been like to listen to him for the first time as one of those people who had gathered around that golden calf to worship that idolatrous God that they had created there, he comes with a word about the covenant that God has made. He comes and he tells them that the Lord God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, desires to make a place for him to dwell in their midst. That would have been the first time they would have heard that, most likely. Imagine how incredibly gracious that is. Imagine if you would have been there, you would have seen what took place, how quickly the people of Israel turned away from God. And here, God comes sending his messenger, this one with the glowing face who stands up in front of the people of Israel, and he says, the Lord was angry. He threatened to take his presence away, and yet through the mediation of Moses, now he comes and he says to you, I will. 
be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell in your midst. I will commune with you in a way that no one has communed with God since the days of the garden. I will come and dwell with you. I will be your God. Imagine the mercy and the grace that's being communicated in that. It must have been overwhelming. I I, I would have thought that they would have been overwhelmed by this. The Lord is reaffirming his covenant. He's renewed it. And he shows that not only in the tablets that are brought down, but in this message of restoration and reconciliation with this rebellious, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, and disobedient people. We see the glory of God really reflected in the face of Moses here. We see the grace of God reflected in the message of Moses. It's a marvelous thing that's brought together here. It's glorious. We see the message of the mediator. I told you it was going to be brief. We'll move on now to considering what we see introduced there in verse 33, and that is the veiling of the messenger. Notice in verse 33, the text tells us that when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And in verse 34 and 35, we see that worked out in greater detail. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil. And then when he came out to talk to the people, what would he do? It tells us in verse 35, he would take it off and the people of Israel would see again that face of Moses and that the skin of his face was shining. And then Moses, after he had commanded the people what the Lord had taught him, he would put the veil back over his face. Now, if all we had was this particular portion, and we didn't have Paul's commentary on it in 2 Corinthians, there would be very little that we could say about it. We could make some extrapolations, which we later see confirm, no doubt. I mean, the first thing we could ask would be, why exactly does Moses put the veil on his face? Well, the answer is obviously, in part at least, because the people are so distracted by the radiance of his face that he really can't act as the mediator in their midst with this shining radiance that he has. Everywhere he goes, he he strikes the fear of the Lord into the people. It, in some ways, gets in the way of his ministry. They can't deal with this glory. So he has to protect the people from their fear of it. That's part of why he veils it. But we also see, interestingly, in 2 Corinthians, that one of the reasons why he veils his face is to protect the people from something else about the glory. Not this time the, the fact that it scares them because it's the glory of God, but Actually, he wants to protect them also from seeing the fading of the glory. That's an interesting observation that Paul makes for us there. You see, Moses is concerned, apparently, that if the people see the glory of his face fading, perhaps, maybe, they would think that the Lord is no longer in their midst. That's not what's meant. He is concerned to protect the people from the reality, according to, to the Apostle Paul, that even this glorious covenant that has been made with them here and all of the amazing grace that God has demonstrated to them in reconciling them to himself and making this covenant, all of this is actually temporary. It's fading. 
It's only for a moment, and it's going to be replaced by something. And yet the people could not bear that, we learn. And we see also from Paul what the veil symbolizes. As we contemplate the reality that people could not bear the truth about this glory, Paul tells us, really, that part of the reason for this veil was the inability of the people of Israel to comprehend even the glory of the law. They could not even deal with the glory of the first covenants. They could not deal with the fact that it was as glorious as it was, but they also couldn't deal with the fact that it was fading. And so, to protect them from these realities, Paul covers his face. He veils his face. Paul, interestingly though, also clearly paints the picture for us. That the way the veil is removed from over the hearts of the people of Israel is when one of them turns to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that indicates to us something else about this veil. You see, the veil here is meant to hide the glory of this first covenant. It's meant to protect the people from it. And yet, it's also meant to point forward to something else. It's meant to point us forward to a future glory. A glory in which uh, there would be one who would come and who would not radiate the residual glory of God, but rather who would radiate the divine glory because he was a divine person. It was meant to point us forward to one whom was not only uh, someone who had been in the midst of God's glory, but who was the visible, tangible, physical representation of the invisible God. Uh, This glowing face of Moses, this veil that was placed there, it's all meant to tell us about a time that is coming in which God would make a new covenant, where the people of God would not look at one who had a veiled face that was hiding from him even that little bit of glory, but rather that we would behold one in whom we would see perfectly the glory of the invisible God that we would see in the Lord Jesus Christ as we looked upon his face, as we trusted in his gospel, as we took hold of him, we learned about him, we meditated upon him, that it's there that we would see perfectly. That we would see most gloriously. We would see in such a way that the people of Israel could have only began to imagine God revealing himself unto them. You see, brothers and sisters, Moses was indeed a mediator of the covenant, and we do see the glory of God in in his face, but much more so do we see the glory of God in the face of the Savior. That's the parallel that Paul makes there, isn't it? If you remember from our reading just a few moments ago, he says in chapter 4, verse 6, that the light has shined out of darkness and it's shown in our hearts and it's given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's told us that when one comes to Jesus Christ, one has the veil that is covering their heart removed. When one comes to Christ, they get a glimpse, not only a glimpse, they get to behold in a full-throated way who God is 
and what he has done for them out of his grace and his mercy towards sinners in his son. He makes a number of comparisons between the glory that's represented on Moses' face and the glory that's represented in Christ's face. The first comparison he makes is he points out that Christ reflects the glory of God perfectly. Christ is indeed the image of the invisible God. Christ reflects the glory of God completely. Nothing comes and replaces the glory of God that we see on the face of Jesus Christ. Christ reflects the glory of God in a way that never ends. It merely changes in our experience. We behold it now by faith in the Savior as we see him, as it were, placarded before us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Galatians, but we will behold it in the future by sight. And last of all, the vision that we see of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ It's a transforming vision. It's a vision that when one has meditated, has beheld it, has considered it, has a transformative effect on their life. Indeed, it transforms us from one degree of glory into another. Moses' glory didn't do that, did it? People saw his glory, they were merely afraid. He had to veil it. But when people see the glory of God in Jesus Christ, it changes them. It has, in many ways, the same effect that being in the presence of God had upon Moses. It makes them like him. It gives them a glory. It transforms everything about them. It makes them like Christ. By faith, yes, on this earth, ultimately by sight, when we see him and we become like him. Brethren, this passage is teaching us not only about the glory of God as it's reflected here in this temporal, this fleeting, in this small way in the face of Moses, but it's teaching us who live in the light of New Covenant Revelation to look at the Lord Jesus Christ with unveiled face, to gaze upon him, and to rejoice as we are transformed by that marvelous, glorious vision. Let us seek in everything we do to do just this. Let us, as we consider the appearance of Moses and the message of Moses and the veiling of Moses, consider the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as he has been made manifest for us to deliver the message of grace and peace to sinners and who even at this moment is available to sinners so that we might gaze upon him with nothing keeping us from seeing the glory of God in his face. Let that be true of every one of us here this day as we seek to live for God's glory and for the good of his people. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you, O Lord, and we confess that you have done marvelous things in this world. 
We thank you, O Lord, that you have spoken to us, that you have said, let the light shine in our hearts and that it has shown and that it has shown us your glory in the face of our Savior. We pray, O Father, that you would teach us and that you would transform us by our vision of Christ Jesus. We pray, make us more like him, that we might be more pleasing to you, and that we might be more useful in your kingdom. We ask it in his name. Amen.